0: tom mullen talks freedom hello everyone and welcome back to tom mullen talks freedom i want to welcome all of the new listeners to the podcast and please do subscribe if you haven't already on the platform that you normally listen to podcasts on some of you may have stumbled upon the podcast as a result of some of the articles i've written lately and if so I'd encourage you, please subscribe to the podcast. And also, if you haven't already, sign up on my email list. You can get yourself a free copy of my latest ebook, It's the Fed Stupid. And believe me, once you've read it, you'll agree that it is the root of most of the evils we suffer under, although sometimes it doesn't make the news like uh, politicians do. Today, I wanted to briefly talk about a little bit of the economic news in terms of what politicians do crow about. Most recently, the jobs report that came out on Friday, it was reported that 431,000 new jobs were created in the month of March. And for people who have not yet read my book or are not longtime listeners, I'll just say briefly, the jobs report is largely foo-foo. It's based on a phone survey you probably have surmised that nobody is out there counting every job that's created, and it was exactly 431,000. They do a phone survey, and based on the survey of how many businesses opened or closed among the people that they call, they then do a calculation of how many jobs were either created or destroyed. It's largely speculation. It's probably roughly indicative of what's going on in the jobs market, but of course, I wouldn't pin any accuracy on the exact numbers. And just as an illustration of that, when they release the jobs report the first month of every Friday, they'll usually make some revisions to some of the previous months. And this month was no exception. They did not change any of the months in 2021. So that year is kind of in the books, but they revised the January numbers from 481,000 new jobs to 504,000, and the February numbers from 678,000 all the way up to 750. So they added 95,000 new jobs to the numbers they had previously reported in January and February combined. So these numbers move around. They're not based on any kind of hard science, so to speak, just basically projections with all of the vagaries that come with projections. And I should say that these numbers are rather large in historical context. And the main reason for that is that we're still trying to regain all of the jobs that were lost mainly in March and April of 2020 during the lockdown. So in March of 2020, we lost 1.5 million jobs. And then in April of 2020, over 20 million jobs were lost. And then you had, of course, in the ensuing months, these gargantuan numbers of jobs created, which just represented people going back to work after they were no longer ordered to stay home so in may of 2020 for example we had 2.6 million jobs created not created but allowed to resume 4.5 million the month after that 1.3 million the month after that etc so these are huge numbers compared to historically would be created in a given month and and as an example In the previous five years before 2020, I averaged those months out. And on average, it would be about 193,000 new jobs per month. So these humongous numbers just represent the bounce off of all the jobs lost. And even with these upward revisions for January and February of this year, and the 431,000 number, which was actually a little below the expectations, but that really is neither here nor there, posted for March, we still are 864,000 jobs less than we were in March of 2020. So we still have not created enough jobs to make up for all the jobs lost. Between mostly March and April of 2020, we also lost jobs in December of 2020. Every other month since March of 2020 has been a gain, some very large, especially early in the reopening of the economy and continuing on through last year. But I want to remind everybody, not only are we down 864,000 jobs since March 2020, But when you do the math of how many new jobs we should have created without losing all those jobs, that's 4.4 million more jobs that weren't really created as the population keeps growing. So in order for people to remain employed, of course, and the population getting larger all the time, in order for unemployment not to go up you have to have new jobs created every month. So we did not create roughly 200,000 new jobs over the last 24 months. And so we're millions and millions of jobs in the hole right now. So years later, we're still reeling from the economic devastation that occurred in March and April of 2020. And for several months after, where many states remain locked down even into late in the year. So just a little perspective on that number. The other number published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics is the civilian participation rate. So what percentage of the population is actually participating in the job market? And that number is still a full percentage point below what it was in February of 2020. So this is a number that has been declining over the years, over the last decade or so because of the retirement of baby boomers. So I should say that this number is somewhat deceiving in that you have people who have given up looking for work mixed in with people who are retiring. So one of these days I'm going to spend the time to go dig into the raw data behind this number. They don't make it very easy to find. And they don't publish it on the page where they publish the civilian labor participation rate. So it's a number that gets used politically, especially by the Republicans. When there's a Democratic president, they like to point that it's going down. And then when there is a Republican president, they kind of ignore the civilian labor participation rate and just point to the low unemployment numbers when unemployment numbers are low. And they are right now. Down below 4%, again, just don't forget that they don't count people who say they've given up looking for work. And they don't count people who are retired, of course. They wouldn't be someone who would be considered unemployed. And those populations are jumbled together in that labor force participation rate number. But just one last thing I'll say on that number is that it plummeted in 2020 from 63.4 in February of 2020 to as low as 60.2 in April. And then it slowly started to come back 61.5 by the end of the year, 61.9 by the end of 2021, and now it's back to 62.4. But again, still not where it was in February of 2020. Maybe you could shave a few more tenths of a percentage off for people who retired But some of that number is people who have given up looking for work and have either just gone on public assistance, or it's a second income in a household where they're doing without that second job, whatever. The other story I wanted to touch on is one that Tom Luongo and I discussed at length on an episode last week, and that is the Russian government's decision to peg the Russian ruble to gold. And we discussed the ramifications of that in a lot of detail. And I've also written some articles warning the American public about what the ramifications could be if the US dollar loses its status as the world's reserve currency. And I'd like to just elaborate on that a little bit, in that it's not going to be like there's going to be a day when on Wednesday, The dollar is the world's reserve currency, and on Thursday, it's not. But like every other economic reality, it happens on the margins. So pretty much the whole world has been using the dollar as its reserve. A huge percentage of the world's oil is purchased in dollars, as we all know by Saudi Arabia, but by many others as well. So any move away from that by any percentage of the world population or the world markets represents a diminishment of that privilege. It represents a drop in demand for dollars, and that demand for dollars is what allows us to print so many trillions and trillions of them without any corresponding increase in productivity and get away with it without skyrocketing prices now we're feeling the inflation and inflation being expansion of the supply of money and credit that occurred in 2020 and 2021 we're feeling that now but boy oh boy if the dollar was not demanded all over the world then we'd be feeling it even more and that's really the way to think about it that once this ukraine war is over i'm sure there'll be somewhat of a pullback on maybe some of the price inflation. And if you listen to that Luongo episode, he has the theory, and that's been confirmed by others, including Jim Rogers in an interview that I saw over the weekend, there'll be a flow of capital into the United States. Luongo says it'll be the collapse of Europe and the euro that results in a flow of capital into the U.S., And, of course, that may have a positive effect on U.S. financial markets. But in the long run, we still have the same issues that we had, let's say, before 2020 and certainly before the Ukraine war. And to the extent that large segments of the world population cease to use the dollar as its go-to currency, that's going to tend to put pressure on the dollar and give us less leeway here in the United States to just solve every problem by printing new ones without experiencing even more price inflation than we already do. Now, two things. That doesn't mean everything was hunky-dory before 2020, and that's really what my book, It's the Fed Stupid, is about. The Fed is an ongoing ripoff. It's this idea that the quote-unquote greater good calls for basically stealing on a very slow, gradual scale. But over the course of your life, prices go up. So to the extent that you would be richer by being more productive or the economy being more productive as a whole, which should make prices go down, as they did in the 19th century on the gold standard, the fiat inflationary monetary system that we have now just steals a little bit from you all the time and makes you poorer than you otherwise would be with the excuse that we need an elastic money system and all kinds of economic fallacies, which really, again, justifies this theft from everybody and who benefits from it, the richest people in society. That's why my book promotional copy says, hey, whether you're a libertarian, a conservative, a socialist, progressive, liberal, whatever, you should be against the Fed. And never more than now, when we may start to feel the effects of what it has done even more sharply. So as far as this article on Zero Hedge goes, I don't know that there's anything new in there, but it just kind of breaks down the numbers very well. And I'm not sure who the original source of this analysis is. Certainly, I heard it from Tom Luongo before I read this article that just came out today in Zero Hedge. I don't know if that writer has been talking about this dynamic for longer. The peg of the ruby to gold only happened on the Friday before last. So maybe several people with the same outlook have had the same analysis at the same time. But I'll post the article on the show notes page and it might be a fast way to summarize some of the things Tom Luongo and I talked about on that previous episode. But what I really wanted to get to overall today is the acceptance by so much of the American public of what I'm calling the Sovietization of American life. Really, all aspects, economically, the vast amounts of what used to be controlled by the private sector, economically, socially, personally, that is now controlled by the government, And really, the only thing anyone seems to be arguing about is whether the government's doing it right or whether the other political party might control that better. So, for example, we have a lot of criticism of Joe Biden for shutting down the Keystone and other pipelines at a time when gas prices are higher than any time in our lifetimes, or at least they have been in the recent past. Okay, so why does Joe Biden get to shut down a pipeline? Why isn't oil and the buying and selling of it completely a private sector matter? Well, it's because those pipelines have to run over federal land. And why is that? It's because the federal government owns so much of the land area of the United States. The last I checked, it was about 27% of the whole country is owned by the federal government. There's absolutely no reason for that. And I believe it's still about 40% or over 40% west of the Mississippi is owned by the federal government. So, of course, when you have something like a long oil or natural gas pipeline, you're not going to be able to construct it in practical terms without going over federal land. This gives the federal government absolute control over whether you're able to run oil through it or not, how much you're able to run through it. And again, you know, even going further than that, it's in the hands of the president himself because we don't live in a constitutional society. According to the U.S. Constitution, the legislature makes the rules and the president merely executes them. But since the New Deal, we don't really even have that executive regulatory agencies really make most of the law which means the president makes most of the law unless you elect one who doesn't agree with the lifelong bureaucrats in those agencies like trump occasionally disagreed and then they just do what they want regardless of what the person you elected orders so much for democracy not that i'm any big fan of that But why is nobody questioning the fact that the feds own all this land? This is one of the planks in Karl Marx's communist manifesto was that the government should own all the land. Of course, we're not all the way there. I guess we're 27% communist. That's way too much, in my opinion. And we also have a local dispute going on here in western New York over the Buffalo Bills. And since the Buffalo Bills don't stink anymore, in fact, they're pretty darn good, then they have some national light on them. So I think maybe it might be interesting to people outside of this area what's going on. But of course, there's a big argument over whether the public should pony up $850 million to pay for this new stadium they're going to build and how much of that should be paid for by the owner of the team and how much should be paid for by taxpayers as a way to get a stadium that can generate the kind of revenues that make the team competitive in 2022 and beyond. At the end of the day, of course, the county owns the actual building, and no one seems to question that. What possible justification is there for the county to have to build and own, maintain a building... For a private for-profit company to operate for-profit events, what would be wrong with the Pagulas, who certainly can get the financing for, I think the stadium's total cost is about $1.3 billion. They're good for that. They're worth a lot more than that, and they could certainly get the financing to own the land, build the building themselves, take the risk themselves, and keep all the profits. Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. You work on the answer that you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Schmack, about everything you said. We humans just are logical, Too crazy We justify the Soviet public school system because it's supposedly some sort of public good, like the roads, another nutty idea that was not part of the original American Republic, that for the first 80 years the roads were built by private companies. I know I've said that before, but I like to remind people, and I don't mean that people were taxed and a private company was given money to build the roads like they are today. I mean that the roads were owned by private companies for profit. They took all the risk. They ran the roads. They kept the profits. And the road system was a lot better, relatively speaking. Did they have asphalt? No. Of course, technology is better. But you didn't used to see roads under construction permanently like we do now, where you can't even drive 10 minutes in any city or one hour on any interstate highway and not run into some kind of delay because the road's under repair and no one's working on it. You didn't used to have that when the roads were privately owned. And every minute that they weren't at full capacity was a business liability for the owners. So the Hamiltonians eventually won. This is why he's so celebrated by all the big government people. You don't see a Jefferson (laughs) musical. You see a Hamilton musical because he was a proponent of this nonsense, like public goods, the common good, that kind of thing, and that there were some products like the roads and infrastructure that could not be provided by the private sector i should say jefferson was the proponent of the nutty idea that the schools should be public goods so he wasn't perfect either but what about a stadium this is not something anyone needs to survive this isn't something that even most people use it only holds eighty thousand people and more than half of them are season ticket holders So it's the same forty or 50,000 people coming to every game. So that leaves a very small part of the population that uses this building. Yet everybody is forced to pay for it. And it's just for entertainment. Now, let me say, I love the Buffalo Bills. I went to my first Buffalo Bills game when Jack Kemp was still the quarterback. (laughs) Before he was even a politician. I have an autograph from him actually signed after he was a politician. But when I was a little kid, I actually met Jack Kemp because my father was the president of what they used to call the Buffalo Bills Booster Club. So I met Jack Kemp. I met Paul McGuire at the restaurant Sestak and McGuire's, which was right around the corner from the house I grew up in. And he asked me what I thought of the Buffalo Bills. And my answer purportedly was, they bums. I don't remember saying that, but my father told that story many times, and this would have been when I was three, four, five years old, something like that. In any case, I've been going to Buffalo Bills games since they were playing in War Memorial Stadium, affectionately known as the Rock Pile here in western New York. My father had season tickets for our entire family of four, For the first two years that the present stadium existed, 1973 and 74. So I'm a lifelong fan of the Buffalo Bills. I'm hoping that I am not the second generation who lives his whole life without them winning a Super Bowl. I'd hate to see them leave, but that has nothing to do with my right to force other taxpayers to pay for the stadium. And when it comes down to it, the word public, that's what it really is. That's what it means. It means something some people want that they want to force everybody else to pay for. Public schools, public roads, public stadium. The stadium is owned by the government of Erie County. And guess what? Last year, they put in a vaccine mandate so that you were not allowed to get into the stadium without showing proof of vaccination. How about that? This is what you get when the government owns and controls property. They get to make decisions about how it's disposed of based on pure edict. Now, it's possible that most people who patronize the stadium would also choose to get vaccinated, but not all of them. So just think if you are not vaccinated, and that's a personal choice, supposedly, you're not only forced to pay for the stadium, but you're not even allowed to go inside it. And this assumes that you have any interest in going to a Buffalo Bills game anyway. So there's just absolutely no justification for this, but it's all over the place. Why is the government completely in control of distributing COVID vaccines? Why are they completely in control of distributing COVID treatments like monoclonal antibodies? There's just no justification for this. And nobody argues that they're in charge of these things. If you get a conservative, They're arguing that they're just not doing it right. Why did they cut off Florida from certain medicines? No, the question is, why is this in the hands of the government at all? So we're really a long way from the so-called land of the free. And I'll remind you of an earlier episode, and especially, I would say probably a vast majority of people listening today were not listeners back when I did episode nine of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. And that one was titled, You Have a Right to What You Own and Nothing More. And it really got down to the founding principles of the United States. And I made the argument, the founding principle is not liberty, it's property. That according to John Locke, whom Thomas Jefferson himself said was the source of the ideas about natural rights and liberty the way Americans saw it. And I'll read you what John Locke wrote in the treatise that Jefferson directed people to read. If you want to understand liberty and natural rights the way we do here in America, you got to read John Locke's second treatise where he said, and he's writing here about why people bother to form governments in the first place. So here's the quote. This makes him willing to quit a condition which, however free, is full of fears and continual dangers. And it is not without reason that he seeks out and is willing to join in society with others who are already united or have a mind to unite for the mutual preservation of their lives, liberties, and estates, which I call by the general name property. The great and chief end, therefore, of men's uniting into commonwealths and putting themselves under government is the preservation of their property. So you can see that Locke kind of took life and liberty and your stuff and your money and your land. That's all combined into this one concept called property. In my earlier episode, was basically to say, I don't think Jefferson and George Mason and others did us any favors by breaking our rights up into life and liberty. And they separated property as just your money stuff and your land. But that's not really the way that Locke conceived it. Of course, the document that is credited with convincing a critical mass, not most, but a critical mass of Americans to support independence from Great Britain was common sense by Thomas Paine. And what does he say the purpose of government is? He says this, he finds it necessary to surrender up a part of his property to furnish means for the protection of the rest. So you can see the relationship to the earlier Locke treatise. And of course, all the founding fathers were channeling Locke all through the 1760s and 70s. When Samuel Adams wrote his Rights of the Colonists in 1772, It's really just kind of the book report version of Locke's second treatise. Jefferson, when he writes to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. He's really saying for the preservation of our property, but he says those rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Of course, again, Jefferson, who often said Locke was one of the three greatest men who ever lived, said that Locke's second treatise was the source of these ideas He was picking that part of the Declaration of Independence out of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, written by George Mason, who referred to himself as a man of 1688. What does that mean? He's referring to the Glorious Revolution and the English Bill of Rights, which all were heavily influenced by John Locke directly. But the Virginia Declaration of Rights says the following, and you can see that this earlier... Document is where Jefferson got some of the phraseology for his Declaration of Independence. That all men are by nature equally free and independent, and have certain inherent rights of which, when they enter into a state of society, they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. So that document precedes the Declaration of Independence, and I can't believe that it didn't influence Jefferson's choice of words. He puts it more succinctly, just calls the rights inalienable, cannot be divested, and only picks out a a certain few. But again, all of these are contained within the idea of property that was defined by Locke. So, look at how far we are from this. And, of course, that idea that every person owns him or herself, that as a result of that self-ownership, that they have an absolute right to liberty, as long as they don't invade the property of someone else, and that they have a right to keep the fruits of their labor and dispose of them as they see fit, something that you cannot do when your labor is taken away in taxation and spent on something that you didn't consent to buy, that idea is completely the opposite of, let's say, the Soviet Union, where the government owns everything, including the people, and how they dispose of not just their labor and their earnings, but their bodies And their liberty. Of course, you had to take it all away in the Soviet Union in order for order to be maintained because it's the natural inclination of everybody to pursue their individual happiness. And of course, to be able to pursue your happiness, you have to be free to do what you want. You have to be free to keep the money that you earn and spend it the way you see fit or save it or give it away or whatever. That is the essence of the pursuit of happiness. It's why it's called out as a separate right from liberty, the idea that it is the individual's happiness, however they define it, that is an inalienable right, completely at odds with the government owning, controlling property, taking a large part of what you earn and spending it as it sees fit. And of course, owning revenue-producing assets is no business of the government at all in the kind of free society that the founders imagined and existed for much of the first half of American history. Now, I know a lot of people might be tempted to say, well, all these ideas work normally, and of course, I agree with all that, but in an emergency like covid or the Ukraine war, how this became an emergency for the United States. Well, we know how it did, but how it would be an emergency for the United States if the government were telling the truth is beyond me. But in any case, a lot of people might say during an emergency like an epidemic, the government's got to step in and control something like the distribution of vaccines or large amounts of relief funds for people who are out of work, whatever. So let me just Suggest to you that that kind of thinking. Number one, I don't agree with that. I think in an emergency more than in any other time, we need the market free to work to decide how far prices go up on things that might be scarce. That's why these anti price gouging laws are completely counterproductive. You want the price of scarce items to go up so that people will not use them injudiciously. But putting that aside, Let me suggest also that we're in a state now where the government is not going to let the emergency ever end. And it really hasn't ended even since the 2008 financial crisis. We've had ongoing inflation of the dollar at levels exponentially higher than at any time in U.S. history. And I thought I'd read you something from 2009 that you might find interesting in terms of this whole idea that the government has to step in in an emergency. So this was a speech given at Davos. I'll tell you who it was at the end. You might guess as it gets on towards the end. But 2009 said, excessive intervention in economic activity and blind faith in the state's omnipotence is another possible mistake. True, the state's increased role in times of crisis is a natural reaction to market setbacks. Instead of streamlining market mechanisms, some are tempted to expand state economic intervention to the greatest possible extent. The concentration of surplus assets in the hands of the state is a negative aspect of anti-crisis measures in virtually every nation. In the 20th century, the Soviet Union made the state's role absolute. In the long run, this made the Soviet economy totally uncompetitive. This lesson cost us dearly. I am sure nobody wants to see it repeated. Nor should we turn a blind eye to the fact that the spirit of free enterprise, including the principle of personal responsibility of business people, investors, and shareholders for their decisions, is being eroded in the last few months. There is no reason to believe that we can achieve better results by shifting responsibility onto the state. And you may have guessed at the end there with the personal pronoun related to the Soviet Union, that was Vladimir Putin speaking at Davos in 2009. Ironically, from my point of view, since I grew up half of my life during the Cold War, The Russian president lecturing President Obama on the evils of socialism and communism and the inadvisability of allowing the government to step in and assume new powers and control economic activity just because there happens to be an emergency. Who would have ever thought? Now, I know Mr. Putin's not very popular at the moment, and rightly so in some respects, Although by the United States government standards, he's completely justified in his invasion of Ukraine, maybe not by my standards. But ironic indeed that the president of Russia would say those words in 2009 when we were told that the kind of monetary inflation that has become routine was a once-in-a-lifetime response to a once-in-a-lifetime crisis. Folks, the emergency will never end, and we've got to get the government out of just about everything it's got its hooks into, because now they're invading our bodies, and it's not going to stop there. So I'll leave it there for the moment, folks. Take some time to consider in these political arguments about how the government should be disposing of resources and directing economic activity, what a Soviet idea that is, how antithetical to freedom it is, and we need to shift the discussion over how did the government get in charge of this in the first place. So coming up on Wednesday, I'm going to have Janice Kortkamp. Janice is an interesting person. She was a crowdfunded journalist who made seven trips to Syria between 2016 and 2019, and she's going to give us a firsthand look at what was really going on in that country when we were being told many of the same things about Assad and the Syrian government that we were being told about Putin and the Russian government in terms of committing atrocities and killing civilians. Of course, the role was completely reversed, Assad was defending his own country against mainly foreign terrorists armed and funded by the United States, as Janice will confirm, while now we're saying that Putin and Russia is the bad guy. And Zelensky, who was up until the end of February shelling his own citizens, is now the hero. So that's going to be a very interesting episode and in addition to that episode, I would just remind everybody that if you're new and you haven't downloaded a free copy of my book, It's the Fed Stupid, go to my website, Tom com or go to it's the Fed to download a free copy of that. And also if you like the music that you've been hearing during some of the breaks, here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at Tommullensings.com. So thanks, everybody, and I'll see you on Wednesday. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.